Everyone wants to sell the token rewards, which dumps the token onto your liquidity, which means your LP position keeps losing a lot of money and maybe more money than you were ever gaining by getting your rewards and dumping them. There are some questions to these models, but that same ethos that there will be this ecosystem and ways for everyone to participate. Hopefully we can find ways to make it survive and make it even more sustainable. Scraping Bits is brought to you by the following sponsors. MEV Protocol. Maximize your ETH staking value with MEV ETH exclusively on MEV.io and Composable. Execute any intent on any chain coming soon to mantis.app. That's M-A-N-T-I-S dot A-double-P. GMGM everyone, my name is Degachi, the host of Scraping Bits. Today, I'm with Cassandra from Arrakis. How's it going? Hey there, going good. Excited to be here. Excited to have you on. And just for the people that aren't too familiar with you, who are you and what do you do? Yeah, so I'm Cassandra.e. I'm the CTO of Arrakis Finance, which is this DeFi protocol built on top of decentralized exchanges, specifically Uniswap v3 right now, where we basically help everyone who's trying to provide liquidity to decentralized exchanges on chain in different ways. So those can be protocols, retail liquidity providers, different kinds of sophisticated actors, but trying to build something that people can use to provide liquidity more in a more optimal way and sort of harness the tools of on-chain liquidity provision. I think that's really important for V3 and beyond because it's just becoming exponentially more complex versus V2. Like V2, you can just throw in liquidity and forget about it until next year. But V3 is on the, the ranges. That's the core thing. And then V4 has the hooks and whatnot. So tell us about that. How do you automate this kind of stuff? Or Yeah, great question. And I like your framing. I think it's always really interesting to remember. I think it's really important, actually, that you need V2 came first because that really was the one that created the dream of anybody can be a market maker, right? The liquidity in the market can be sourced from anywhere. And this design was actually very approachable, right? It really did allow anybody to participate. If we had realized that we needed to jump to V3 right away, maybe that dream never would have become as metabolized across the crypto ecosystem, right? And instead, it would have always only been specialized actors. But because that came first, it turns out like it was wildly inefficient, or at least we know it needs it sort of needs to improve and thus complexify. And then maybe even it does make itself better for these more specialized actors. Because we got that dream at the beginning, I think that'll be really important for at least the next five years of how we try to build things like AMMs that make that dream, keep that dream at least alive in certain ways. So yeah, with V, our product was really built right after V2. When V3 launched, this seemed like a watershed moment. In fact, at the time, I thought like, okay, this is it. This was the watershed moment. Now, with V4 coming out, you realize that maybe this is even a bigger leap in terms of complexity changes to how the sort of market structure of AMMs. But anyway, V3 already felt like a massive change. And I could tell that they weren't doing it for no reason because they were making it way more complicated. But the things that they were touting of way better capital efficiency and so on, and you could at least notice, right, that if you can have these ranges that for things like stable coins, UniV pools made no sense whatsoever, right? Because why would you have liquidity when one die equals a 15,000 USDC, right? It just makes no sense. Well, it's what deep eggs. Like it's done a couple of times. <laughs> <laughs> True, of course, right? These things aren't actually fully stable all the time, but still, right? Like that opened up the opportunity for, I don't know, I guess a curve, right? Came in and filled that niche because Uniswap pools didn't work for everything. They certainly didn't work for that. So V3 was like a really exciting, interesting development that I was pumped about. And I think the issue then, of course, is exactly it makes the liquidity provider's job changes fundamentally, even just with this slight addition of not that many choices, but now you can pick a price range. And liquidity isn't this is not as democratized, right? Because we used to all take a share of all the volume and everybody had to run the exact same liquidity provision strategy. The only choice you had was when to provide the liquidity and when to remove it. Now, just by adding one more choice that you can put a range on your liquidity, actually everything changed. And us as liquidity providers are now PVP against each other, where you want to be more concentrated than the other to pick up more of the fees and so on. And you have to make all these choices and then you might have to adjust these choices because you might pick a price range 
and pick a price range that makes a lot of sense for the prices today and would help you to capture a lot of fees in the market because it's highly concentrated. And then, of course, regimes change, prices move, and then you need to decide, do I want to rebalance my inventory and eat some losses to provide deep liquidity around this new price range of this new regime? Or should I have had a wider range to begin with? Or when I notice the market moving, should I make my range much less concentrated in order to avoid the sort of losses I'm taking to those to the more informed participants who know the price needs to move in that direction? All of these questions make it just way, way more complicated for a liquidity provider, even just moving from V2 to V3. And so in this ethos of can we still keep an AMM world alive where anyone can feel confident to provide liquidity to this new exchange, which has many more complicated choices for people and DAOs and everyone who might be providing liquidity in the V2 setting. Can we keep that dream alive somehow? And the idea that we had in Arrakis is basically to, and it comes straight from, by the way, the Uni V3, kind of the first documents they came out with, they pointed right to this. There's like a sentence in there where they say, and Uni V3 positions could be tokenized at the periphery. And I basically read that before Uni V3 even came out. And I thought, yeah, let's do this. Let's create a wrapper around Uni V3 where people can deposit liquidity into this wrapper and they'll get back a fungible token. And they can basically subscribe themselves to one specific liquidity strategy. Since now you might your liquidity providing actually needs to have a strategy where you might either have a full range and then you don't need to do anything, but you might also have tighter, more concentrated ranges that you might want to update for different reasons. And could we create this standard, this vault standard of where you get back to having the fungible liquidity? And for those actually providing the inventory, it goes back to this simple UniV2 like experience where you just provide the liquidity and you earn your share of the fees and of the profits, but then have sort of a platform where it's possible to encode exactly what the rules might be of these different liquidity strategies and what are the trust assumptions there, who can manage it, or is it entirely on-chain and create like a whole potential ecosystem for this. So that's really where we came from was really just reading the Uni V3 white paper and noticing that there was going to be major complexity there and deciding to do something about it. And because at that time, everyone was so excited about V3, we were hit with really organic demand right away because it turned out that DAOs actually, right, DAOs do have a protocol on liquidity and people issuing a new token. They wanted to put liquidity on chain on Uniswap, but now they were like, oh, but wait, what price range should I pick? Is it good? And so on. So we were able to fill that hole. Yeah, I don't think a lot of people would even know about what price range to do. Unless, I guess, they had a price range in mind and like a pre-sale. But I guess if it's open market, what do you even choose? You're like, oh, I think this one. But then, you know, a bunch of people buy and then it's broken out of that range by you know, maybe tenfold. And you're like, oh, well, shit. <laughs> How do you even do it? And I think the math behind V3 is marginally more complex than V2. And maybe people don't have the skills behind that. I know I don't. I'm not a math head. So <laughs> I think someone made a book on it, on explaining like everything in V3. And that's how I kind of learned it, but not like to the intuitive level of understanding everything behind it, but at least like working in a test and I can just kind of play around with it given the formulas, I guess. But you know, a lot of people don't know that and maybe don't have the time to do that, especially if they're running a protocol because, you know, it's protocol in itself is hard enough and they don't want to focus on learning math for one specific thing. They want to build the actual thing. And so I love the aspect of the PVP element that is introduced with E3 because it's ranges now. There's one variable that determines basically how much fees you get rather than everyone chucking the most amount of money you have. You can be less capitalized and actually do better than someone with a shit ton of money as long as you know what you're doing. Well, to a degree, I think. Yeah, for sure. In theory, it's possible, right? In practice, I agree with you. Yeah, probably the more money you have, the more you're realizing you need to be a little more sophisticated about how you might distribute that liquidity. But in theory, and you, you do see it all the time in Uniswap, at least in short timeframes, where one actor with not that many funds, but just with all their liquidity in, let's say, one tick, is for a little while absolutely dominating the fees, taking all the fees, essentially. And this happens routinely. One reason is because, you know, people use Uniswap B3 as a limit order, a place to kind of have this sort of very rough limit order-like experience where you just put in one-sided liquidity and then you wait for it to get fully crossed and then you remove it. 
the pro the reason it's not really like limit order is you actually have to do this active action to remove it. But a lot of people actually do place these limit orders sometimes. You can see them in the book and like a really tall spike in the ETH USDC market, like 15% up or down or something. And that's definitely someone who's really just very likely using it like a limit order. But with the benefit of at the time while it's actually churning through that specific tick, then the lion's share, and there might be 200 million in the pool, but they're getting all the fees for, for that day or that time frame. Oh, yeah. And even just MEV strategies of JIT just works. I mean, that introduced that strategy. Yeah, that this completely didn't exist pre-UniV3. Yeah, and I wonder what V4 will introduce, especially with Uniswap X as well, the limit orders. And I think they're probably using account abstraction for it. How do you really automatically determine these ranges and shift and rebalance? Because obviously there's so many pools, right? So I assume you're not covering all of these pools, however many tens of thousands there are. So what is kind of the process of doing this? Yeah, that's a great question. I think so when we started, we were really optimistic and UV3 didn't even exist yet. And nobody really understood these concepts that well yet. Nowadays, it's starting to look more and more like merging with the traditional financial world's ideas around liquidity and how order books work and so on. But at that time, because UniV2 was the model, everybody thought LPing was like its own universe totally as still kind of very sectioned off from traditional financial thinking in markets and so on. And so nobody had that much of a clue. And we at least were pretty naive at the very, very beginning thinking, for instance, that just by keeping a very concentrated range and you know just keeping updated to keep following the price and rebalancing to move there, that was like our first experiment on like an ETH die or something. And we thought that, oh, maybe we're just going to like print money and it's going to be amazing. And you realize very, very quickly that we were very quickly losing money. And we went, oh, okay, this range rebalancing is a really hard problem because of the fact that in order to get yourself back in range, you have to, if you're very, very concentrated, your assets turn over very, very quickly. And then you have to buy back in, in order to get back in range. And if the price is highly volatile, right? If you can get very chopped up in the market, right? The price skyrockets up. Now you have to buy really high, buy back in really high in order to provide liquidity there. Then it shoots way down. Then you have to sell low to buy back in. And now you're buying high and selling low and you're losing money. LP, how did you start this out? Were you just doing like with one, just seeing, experimenting with that or? So yeah, first there was internal experiments with LP and we realized, wow, these volatile markets, this is going to be really complex, right? It's not just have a basic pieces that you want to be very concentrated and it's going to work and that you automate it and it's going to work. No. So what we did actually is first we realized that the tokenization was still very, very useful. And so we made the problem easier and we started with stablecoin pairs, actually, right? Because here you can provide a very, very concentrated range that basically never has to change or maybe only a little bit should change every so often. So constrain the problem at first to something easier because we realized that for very volatile markets, it was going to be a very hard problem. So like stablecoins is one place that we were able to really innovate in, at the very beginning and provide a lot of value just because it was way more composable and integratable because you'd have a fungible LP token again. So you could do things like liquidity mining on top really easily or use this LP as collateral, which we did with MakerDAO for DAI USDC. And so just adding that composability was useful, even though the strategy was basically nothing, either static or very, very simple. Like everyone would do the same if it's just a stable coin pair. Yep. And in general, actually, for liquidity mining, it's quite helpful because the liquidity mining on top of V3, when you make it more about like only when you're in range, do you earn the liquidity mining rewards and for everybody can have their own range. The issue is you it gets dominated by like these JIT, JIT like players or people kind of game it and it doesn't get what you want, which is like really sustainable, deep liquidity over a long period because people will go in with super concentrated liquidity for very short timeframes to lap up a lot of rewards. And so what our thing also unlocked, even if it was, let's say, just like a static, very wide range, but you could incentivize a project could choose to incentivize a particular range that they thought was sort of good for the market and fair or whatever. And then all the LPs could earn the liquidity mining rewards by subscribing themselves to that that range, let's say, even if it doesn't even move, so not very sophisticated. Nowadays, we had to build a whole second version of infrastructure to feel comfortable building strategies that would actually, active strategies that would outperform something boring and simple for volatile markets. 
Now we finally have that. And so you can even do liquidity mining on top of some designated strategy. But in my view, all of these things work way better than the sort of liquidity mining by who's in range, because you democratize it again, everyone earns together the same. And thus the project can get more of what they're targeting, what they want. Like I want liquidity like this. So this will autonomously run a liquidity provision strategy like so. And then anyone who feels like pledging their funds to that can earn rewards, but all of them in lockstep, right? Just based on how much, you know, pro rata. So these were the things we tackled at first to avoid the complexities of the active management. Nowadays, the things you have to look into to active manage correctly are a couple of different things that are at your disposal, which is having multiple ranges is very, very helpful, like having asymmetric liquidity, right? So maybe it's more concentrated on one side of the market than on the other. And in general, you might make these distribution type shapes that make more sense for your kind of estimation of the volatility and how this particular market moves around. Volatility is very, very important, right? So like sort of table stakes for making markets in general is that you need to thin the book when volatility starts spiking because you don't want to expose your inventory at the wrong price. And if the prices are moving around very quickly, then one way to just get more conservative is provide less size around any given price. So like being reactive to changes in volatility, so like get more concentrated when you're in a very, very low volatility setting and less concentrated when you're in high volatility can help a lot as well. And then finally, we use kind of this like these limit order techniques where you can create artificially create bigger spreads, right? Because you place an order 2% off the market. If you play, right, if you place, if you place some liquidity 2% above the current price and 2% below, and then you think of them as limit orders. So if it gets filled, you remove it on one side and then the other side gets filled, you remove that. Then now you're making a spread like a traditional order book kind of market maker, right? You're not, and that spread is whatever, two or 4% that you just made there, which doesn't have to do with the fee. Usually when you think of AMMs, we think of the spread as the fee, right? But now you can take a 2% spread on a 0.01% fee tier if you want by, by executing such a liquidity provision strategy. So these are like some of the domains that we look into today while we're trying to make strategies that are actually actually competitive on volatile markets. When I think about these ranges and you know you have a concentrated liquidity for what you think is the average of the day or the week. But the inherent risk of MEV bots, you know, sandwiching like let's say Jared or something. If Jared had his own JIT strategy combined, he's basically targeting every single, you know, normal swap. And you know, within that swap, you could just do JIT before the entire kill chain, quote unquote, like, you know, top bread, the meat, and then the bottom of the bread for the sandwich. But it, you can encase that within a JIT. And then if you have enough capital, all these people that are providing liquidity, they're kind of there. <laughs> they don't get any fees if they have enough money to just JIT it, you know? For sure, right? The providers, it, it's a really big problem if JIT were to become gigantic. It's quite interesting that it never, it didn't, become that huge yet there's not that much J, J, jit inside the inside the uniswap different markets surprisingly little right for how much is talked about actually though maybe we'll keep growing but yeah it's a huge problem because not only do you basically never get any fees if you're always getting jit whenever real order big orders come through but you're exposing yourself to these be the stale price and then your inventory moving, right? So you're taking away all the gains and you're still taking this massive risk of inventory. Yeah, of your- I think like a solution to that would be a time variable of entry of put in X amount of money today and you wait a week and someone does a JIT in a week's time for the exact same range, but with like, let's say 100 mil or something. You, you have the time variable. And so it, it might like scale for you because you've been there longer and might work, but I don't know the repercussions. I was just kind of a first initial thought of how to counter it. Well, you can certainly, right, you could add JIT protection into uh, Uniswap B4 hook for sure, right? By by enforcing that all LPs need to make a certain time commitment. This is one way to uh, yeah. make JIT impossible, right? Is you just like, you add a rule that you can't provide liquidity and then remove it in the same block or something. Though, 
I, I don't love this actually because this is something we do a lot at Arrakis, not on purpose, not because we're doing JIT, but because sometimes when we rebalance our positions, right, we'll remove a bunch of positions and and then place new ones all in one big transaction, which I guess uh, depending on how you make the JIT protection, you might over discriminate for stuff like us, which isn't actually manipulating at that using it as a JIT tactic exactly, but it is just trying to reposition its liquidity efficiently in one transaction. Hmm, interesting. Uh, and we talked about the stable coin ranges, but when you think about volatile scenarios, like in a bull market, for example, you know, the food coin craze where there was just like tons of people going to yam finance and all these rebalance tokens where they'll auto adjust every 24 hours, just, you know, massive shifts in price. And obviously there was V free back then. It would be a giant game. And I, I hope there would be another food craze because, you know, V3 would be very interesting in that kind of condition. And it would be quite a big strategy, I think, especially for oh, anyone really like vault managers, even JIT would be giant because oh, yeah. when you're trading I, I mean, like hundreds of millions. And, and another bull market, it's in some, I don't know, food tokens are coming back, right? But Yeah, I don't think so. But that was like the master chef innovation. That's cool. Exactly. Liquidity mining, right? And that's what's cool too, right? Liquidity mining, which is also maybe a, a thesis that who knows if it'll live forever, but this was a huge unlock in terms of people actually participating. It wasn't only that anyone could provide liquidity, but also there were these systems and these new and tokens that were inflating and so on that would actually incentivize you to make the markets deeper. And then these markets were actually, Uniswap v2 markets were actually getting quite deep, even though they weren't that efficient. efficient because of all these interesting games that were being created on top. And all of this time period, I think it was so important for, again, this ethos of that it is possible to have a very super permissionless ecosystem and environment that's creating these deep markets where anyone can trade, but that's actually being sourced from like all these, you know, any sort of participant anywhere through all these different financial games of we'll give you a reward and liquidity mining. And I think hopefully something of this spirit definitely lives on. It just needs to become a bit more adult and complex or something because, of course, some a lot of liquidity mining looks a bit like it ended up being a way to lure people into providing liquidity without knowing what they were doing, and then you get this token. If the token dumps, right, the classic thing is some sort of death spiral where everyone wants to sell the token rewards, which dumps the token onto your liquidity which means actually your LP position keeps losing a lot of money and maybe more money than you were ever gaining by getting your rewards and dumping them. And so there are some questions to to these models, but this that same ethos that there will be this kind of this ecosystem and ways for everyone to participate, I think hopefully we can find ways to make it survive and make it even actually a little bit more more sustainable, I guess. The only time I ever provided liquidity was during that food the food craze, and that's because the APYs were so high for providing liquidity. And uh, the rewards, right? Some incentives. But, you know, without the incentives, the risk versus reward doesn't seem to align. And so I've never really done it beyond them in terms of, you know, you have the inherent risk of everything moving, the underlying tokens. So if you're doing like ETH and token A, you really just want ETH. So you're taking this risk of holding token A and the price might change. Well, High likelihood of changing to not what you want you know like 90 percent of tokens are kind of useless and so if you're doing that plus like the fees you get if someone's like jating or you just don't have a lot of money then you're probably not going to make a lot and loss is just no man it's it's usually a better bet to just hold the eth instead and absolutely right absolutely so why would someone want to even jump into LPing nowadays, at least, if there's just so much downside versus upside? I mean, it's a great question, right? And then we add into this, I think this is what we we analyze and talk about all the time, is like, will there, will there even really legitimately be a space for this? Or was this ethos only naivete, right? And it really doesn't make sense because the risk reward for making markets in general is really difficult, right? That's why it's these highly specialized actors who end up doing it in the traditional financial world is because there's a lot of risks and they're difficult to understand and quantify and, and hedge and so on. 
And the rewards are kind of, they're good, but there's often, right, a little spread on top of everything. It's kind of collecting a small reward all the time, right, with massive risks. This is the domain of market making, and it's why, who does it? These super sophisticated hedge, in the traditional world, right, these super sophisticated hedge funds who know how to fully, perfectly hedge these positions so that they know they're not going to lose to a big move in the underlying, or at least not too bad, and they can just collect on the spreads that they're making facilitating a lot of trading. But the idea that like you and I and anybody and someone who just started a project, right, who now also needs to become some liquidity manager can become this specialized actor is, yeah, potentially questionable, right? It's just really going to work because it's super confusing. And actually, even today, right, you, you have to add into this that just the structure of the AMM itself is making most liquidity providers lose money because of this, the toxic flow that you take on isn't compensated well enough by the by the fees. And when you look at, especially when we got to V3 and you could have many fee tiers and the, we kind of, everybody wanted to get a lot of volume. So we've really been super aggressive in terms of the, the way that the fees have been driven down for LPs. You know, the biggest pool is 0.05 for ETH USDC. And I think Uniswap, my guess, if you look at like when it started, they were really thinking that ETH USDC and like classic major volatile pair would live on the 0.3% fee tier. And I think that's because LPs actually are getting undercompensated on the 0.05% fee tier. Here, here's a great example why Uniswap is now charging 15 bips on the front end just to use it. I don't know if you saw this, right? A Uniswap just released that now they're starting to... It, you, can, you can use Uniswap permissionlessly, but if you use the front end, then on certain tokens like ETH, you actually pay a 15 basis point fee directly to Uniswap Labs, not to the LPs. So they're willing to put a 15 basis point fee on there, but the LPs only take five and the LPs actually take on the underlying risk. This shows that LPs are probably being too greedy for volumes and not actually paying enough attention to the, the risks they're taking on and or basically are are being undercompensated, right? If, if people still want to trade ETH and they're willing to add 15 bips, no problem, just because it's convenient and they like the pink front end, then probably we should be charging at least 15 bips ourselves to be the ones who have the assets that they trade against, right? Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's definitely really questionable. I think you're mainly, your, uh, your, your view is actually the same as like real world market makers, like, like crypto market makers, like Wintermute, right? They don't provide liquidity to decentralized exchanges yet because they don't see it as something that's, they don't see it as the risk reward profile being good for them yet. Maybe that'll change now as the AM get more sophisticated. But basically, the, the, yeah, the biggest problem is not only are these all these complexities we talked about, but there's also these slow block times, right? And prices move in the real world, but then they don't move on the block. And that means you open yourself to top of block, like on a liquid market like ETHUSDC, there's just top of block arbitrage that just leaks every block to, to the arbitrageurs. And this is what we call loss versus rebalancing, right? And this is just a running cost for providing liquidity on decentralized exchanges, on an AMM, right? That you wouldn't even have, like, it's already super complex and, and sort of scary to provide liquidity to any market, to be a market maker. But now if you want to be an on-chain market maker, you also have to add this super severe running cost that you just can't get around right now until we make the AMMs better. So in general, like your view is the right view, which is like, should you be providing liquidity? Oftentimes, probably not. And why does Arrakis still sort of thrive and exist? Well, because getting liquidity on chain is so valuable for other reasons, right? For composability, for like, if you want to be a collateral token and you need to do liquidations, right? All these different things for these permissionless projects and ecosystems where they want anyone to be able to go in and out of their token. There's so much value that people are willing to, to spend and lose money in order to have like deep on-chain liquidity. And, and for now, until things get better, I feel like this is really all Arrakis can do is make it as good as possible, but it's still... It's still pretty not good. <laughs> yeah, I think the majority of probably liquidity is naive. And, or maybe you know a large player knows what they're doing, has a kind of plan. But still, I don't know, like for the small player, it just makes zero sense to do. Exactly. Exactly. But what do you Without think like, B4 is going to do to kind of change this this field as well? So I think there's a lot of talk, though. Basically, 
the classic line would be we need to solve this loss versus rebalancing the L- lever or LVR. Or whatever mm, the top of block it. thing. Yeah, this top of block problem, this running cost that AMMs constantly have where they're not where someone where informed people always get to get a better price at cer- like often against you just because it's because the system is too rigid. So people are really working on that top of block issue for sure for the highly liquid markets. It's not as important for other long tail markets though, right? If they don't have off-chain prices and so on, right? If it's the main liquidity source is Uniswap, that changes things already there. And if you're on a higher fee tier, right, this also makes that less of the most important thing. So I've heard the classic answer is we need to build hooks and so on that will solve these structural problem, like mainly LVR is what people talk about. But really, I'd say more than that, to make it more general, you need to add functionality into the decks that increases the makes helps the LPs make more money, right? The profitability for the LPs in general. That's the big problem. Like, like you say, nobody knows why. But like even Dan Robinson from Uniswap has been heard on podcasts and so on to say like, it's this big question that nobody really knows, which is like, who is providing all that ETH USDC liquidity that everybody is on Twitter all the time being like, it's losing so much money. Why is it there? Right. And it's still there. They don't even Uniswap doesn't even know why. So it's a big, interesting question. Maybe it's just some big player that doesn't know what to do with their money and that's the only option. But, you know, an alternative to that would be just hold ETH. But at that point, Ethereum wouldn't even like thrive because everything is built on these tokens that people trade. So it's like you kind of need liquidity for everything to work. So maybe some giant player is like, okay, we have a ton of this token. We need the ecosystem to survive. And the only way it survives is us providing liquidity. And maybe if you're in it long enough, maybe all these downsides aren't really a downside. It kind of equals out. But yep. I haven't done the math on that general this is really definitely one of the main segments right because think about if you're a token issuer you created a project you want your market to you're willing to pay a cost for this market to be more liquid and people to be able to like trade it on chain without the price moving like insanely all the time or just not even know how to trade it on chain and you're okay with maybe losing good amount of money there especially losing money where like you lose the opportunity cost of holding your own token if it goes up right? Because technically you'd lose money, but it's like, it's your token. So probably you already have a lot of those tokens anyway. So this kind of limits already some of the price moving kind of risks you have as an LP, because you, yeah, you, you lose out on some upside if you sell a lot as the price goes up, but you have this other position, right? Just spot holding a bunch of the tokens that should make it so you were willing to Lose, uh, lose something to opportunity costs there to make the market liquid and you didn't lose everything because you already have a ton. And it might even be the same. You can imagine the same for ETH. Some giant player in the Ethereum world goes, well, like Ethereum needs to succeed. I have a gigantic ETH bag, but Ethereum succeeds if like Uniswap is constantly used and super liquid and so on. And so I'll collect a bunch of fees, take on some risk. Maybe I'll even lose money. But in general, I'll be making it'll be worth it for me because if all of this makes the whole Ethereum ecosystem worth way more, I have this other position, the, the rest of my ETH bag that goes up to 10 or whatever, and it was all was all still worth it. So that's why often, right, token issuers themselves or people, token issuers giving auxiliary incentives for people to put the liquidity there. And then the final one for ETH USDC, right, like who's doing that one? Because that's a little weirder, right? Who has such a big ETH bag? The last way you could think who might actually have an incentive to do this would be the MEV actors themselves, because they get to make a lot of money sandwiching everybody's trades, but only if everybody's trading. So maybe they're willing to lose some money as being the kind of base liquidity that that helping to prime the pump there so that then they can, you know, back run all these markets and sandwich things and so on and still end up kind of the whole thing being net positive for them. This is one one theory for who's actually doing it. Hmm, maybe because I, I think they would use the money themselves to do like JIT, for example, or something. Exactly. Money but how do you, capital. how does the JIT, how, if, if there's not this like long term big well of money in there, is anyone going to be trading on Uniswap? I mean, it can't just be like one giant player. I'm, I think it would be maybe like an institution that would just buy a fuckload and be like, okay, what do we do with this? You know. My view is actually that it's actually people like there's enough people in crypto. That it's not this smart. 
there's enough people in crypto who just want to participate so badly. And even maybe they're have a lot of, you know, they, they have a ton of ETH in USDC and stuff, but they're still kind of naive and just like Uniswap's amazing. I want to participate. I want to play market maker. And they're just not that sensitive to losing a bunch of money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. I think the V4 hooks will be will be interesting as well with people doing their own thing and then the, the mouse is kind of deciding which one to choose. You know, it'll be quite interesting. We also did some stuff on stealth addresses as well. And that was kind of a nerd snipe, I feel like. <laughs> so how did you get into that and, and why did you do it? Yeah, that's a great question. And um, so I just read, um, it had a blog post that was on stealth addresses and stealth address technology is pretty old, actually. It's really basic cryptography in a sense. And yeah, I'd say it's it's like two things. I, I have this background in more traditional cryptography, like not cryptocurrencies. Before I was in cryptocurrency, I was already a researcher in multi-party computation and thinking about cryptography even outside of that domain. And so I have some familiarity with public keys and elliptic curves and so on from first principles that surprisingly a lot of developers on the applications level don't really engage with that that much because you don't have to, right? Ethereum abstracts that away from you. You don't think about the ECDSA algorithm when you just want to transact and so on. But I have some background there and I read the the blog post that came out relatively recently about stealth addresses from Vitalik. It just really resonated with me of like, ah, this is this is elegant and I could implement this. Like it's simple. It's not it's not like it's not like building a you know, StarkNet or something, which is actually very, very, very complicated, right? This is like cryptography that if you've done, if you've taken the courses, the first course in the undergrad or whatever, you know what's going on. It's pretty, pretty dual tractable for even anyone as a weekend project. So I really liked this. And I guess the last part is, yeah, I think I, my belief to bring it back to Uniswap, right? Uniswap is an ap- application that I've, I always felt my framing of how it got built is like Vitalik made an ETH research post and then Hayden was the person smart enough to just be like, I'm just going to implement that exactly how he said it, you know, without any frills. And then you end up with a Uniswap, a very powerful thing. So my view is that whenever you see a Vitalik blog post and you go, I could just implement that, just do it. (laughs) You know, (laughs) you never know what's going to happen. Could be the next big thing. And I think it's important as well, like the privacy stuff, especially with ZK coming out and that kind of new wave. Yeah, I I thought all my wallets were private but then i looked at metamask and saw they were all tracking ips and i was like oh sick cool and then i kind of went a bit deeper into the infosec side of things of oh yeah nodes probably track your ip and all this other stuff so how do you kind of like limit this and then it just becomes like a classic web 2 cybersec problem but i think stealth addresses are cooler especially for DAOs. you know the people that want to be anonymous and do the anonymous work and get paid from a DAO. you can just get paid the wallet that actually holds the tokens but they can see it and i think that is quite cool as long as you don't leak it or you know leak your ip and anything so yeah i think you know especially with the increasing surveillance of the world you know all these wallets tracking your ip and whatnot i think it would be kind of cool to have an open source wallet that would implement some kind of stealth address or anonymous yeah, privacy, yeah, solution privacy like by default i think a lot of people would shift over to that actually care about it at least well that that's the last reason that i did it as well that i feel like so yeah privacy is definitely a value and something that's been hard to actually get moving on chain even though we know that it's really necessary because on chain is like the most transparent place to transact today and you really have really hard to get privacy and also where we have gotten privacy it's like been extremely politicized right and you ofac sanctioning of tornado cash and so on so privacy is a big issue and and finally Privacy is this thing that everybody says they care about, but nobody actually in practice, people say they care about it, but then when it comes down to it, and if they if there's any inconvenience, they are very quick to default to like, okay, forget privacy. So basically it has like tragedy of the commons type thing where it really needs to be a public good because if I make you pay even five cents more, you might actually go, well, then forget privacy. And that's really bad for the whole thing, right? Because everybody has privacy. The whole crypto ecosystem becomes a financial, the global financial sediment layer or whatever, but that can also sort of support people being private, which is very important for the financial substrates, like why cash is so cool. So yeah, I just feel like all of this meant that like, why not you read this blog post, you can hack on it. And in privacy, I feel like really the things that will matter are things that are more just like, 
open source and and not thinking just about how they can capture it as a business but like and this was tractable for me as a couple weekends i could do a project here and now if i deployed the contracts to ethereum mainnet there would already be like a sort of you know very janky very developer focused but like credible way for you to start transacting with privacy all the time by yourself on chain and so let's do it it's interesting about the tornado cash how they sanctioned that but then there's a whole ecosystem zk vms coming out which is which would enable basically infinite tornado caches so <laughs> remember also though yeah that there are two most of the zk vms they're only using zero knowledge technology to compress data right so that like you can provide a proof to the l1 that everything happened correctly but also it's still totally transparent so they're only using the compression aspect the of zk they're not actually doing the privacy some there are a few that are actually interested in privacy aztec great example the inventors of plonk i think who are that's super cool so there are some and probably i bet they will eventually have some they'll have to worry about their legal strategy and so on yeah it'll be interesting but if it's like a decentralized network, which is ZK, then, I mean, how do you even shut that down? I guess you have to track every single node, but if it's just open source code, kind of like a Tor node, you just kind of, what do you do? Exactly. And that's why Zcash and Monero, right, they're in this more gray area where they still run, even though, but they have gotten regulatory pressure and so on. I do think it's sort of tough for them to thrive right now. So hopefully people will get more hip to the idea that this privacy is actually good and useful, but it's a very hard sell right now when crypto is already seen as like very scary and bad and so on for bad actors. And then we say we want it to be private. Like, Yeah, yeah I think why regulatory is coming so hard on it is because it's so powerful and it does actually dethrone them completely. When you think about cash, you know, countries are getting rid of it. Like Australia, for example. They literally took all the cash away. You can't really do anything in cash because you can't withdraw it anymore, or at least very minimal amounts. And there's a lot of paperwork to even withdraw it in cash. That just begs the question, why? And it's just digitalize everything. And then you ask why again, it's just surveillance, you know. And what stops surveillance? Privacy. And that's why they're shutting it all down or regulatory processes to it. But when you go deeper into those meanings, it's such a important point in history, I think, and something that can really change the tide of normal people living versus these big constitutions and a small group of elites that can control everyone. And that's why like cyber becomes even more important and all this other stuff. Cyber, privacy, crypto in general, even though it's kind of a shitcoin Ponzi fest, it still has the inherent value of, I think, being an essential like a monumental step in the right direction for financial freedom and self-sovereignty. And if you don't want your money in a bank where they can just freeze it or take it all out, if the country gets into like some debt, some really bad debt, or they need to reset or something, which I think they've done in the past with the gold standard and stuff, they just kind of like withdrew everything. <laughs> but I remember reading this when I first got into crypto. Crypto is the only thing where you can't just get rugged from the person holding everything. If a bank goes under, I mean, GG for your money, you know? But in crypto, the only thing really stopping is the cryptography behind it and I guess the amount of nodes and whatnot. Yeah, some economic incentives as well. But even those are more dubious, right? We're still figuring them out with proof of stake and do the economic incentives actually hold even if we scale up tremendously, right? And there's a lot of unknowns there. But one thing that I think you touched on that I absolutely agree with, and it's sort of where I come from, my ethos, just cryptography itself has been a very important thing that governments have fought against every step of the way, but it's just huge for human freedom. And like in the 80s, just public key cryptography itself, without any applications, they tried to make it, you know, military secret, and there was all this fighting with the government, and they lost. And then we got an internet with HTTPS where we could actually put our credit cards in there, and psh, the world changed like crazy, right? And now, you utilize that same exact public key cryptography, asymmetric cryptography, and you get Bitcoin and Tor and things like this, which are even more intensely undermining this state power with things that are just better and less corruptible, right? And of course, they always, every time, they create also a fear of like uh, uncertainty around this really scary future that seems anonymous and like, how is it going to be okay? And how do I know that I'm safe and so on? Because we're so attached to the only way to have security and safety is by sort of like centralized participants creating a curated environment. 
But again, cryptography just unlocks a new direction, which is so, so incredible and fascinating. And I'm just, yeah, really committed to... And when you look at history as well, like World War II with the Germans, they were using the Enigma, right? And that was cryptography. And, you know, when Alan Turing and the British decoded that and figured it all out, it really turned the tides of war. In today's society, the, the war is really not physical. It's all cyber and you can't really see it. And that's why nobody's really, you don't really understand it until you're in the game yourself. When you think about the underlying reason of, I guess, governments and cryptography, that kind of war, it's really a testament to the power behind it and why it's so important. And I think more people should definitely get into cryptography, but the learning curve is much harder than just being able to fuck around, find out with a random project. <laughs> oh, for sure. For sure. And that's again why, yeah, like we have to abstract these things and make them have a nice UX. And so when I think about this stealth addresses stuff, like what would I love to see? It's totally some kind of browser based. I would be so cool to see a browser based wallet where you have public address and your ENS name, Cassandra.eth. And one of the sort of records for that ENS Cassandra.eth name is your stealth meta address, which is the thing that allows you to give me private payments without anyone knowing that you're paying me and also without coordinating with me. This wallet would sort of handle these stealth addresses under the hood on your behalf so that you as a user wouldn't even know that you're having these privacy guarantees. And even that you have multiple addresses, kind of like how in Bitcoin, you usually don't reuse addresses. So your wallet was an abstraction, right? You have a, a coin in a lot of little addresses, a lot of UTXOs, but you see it as just one balance. You could have the same thing here in your, I can think of it as, oh, this is just me opening my Cassandra.eth wallet, but inside it are actually all these received payments sitting in all these untouched addresses that give me this privacy, even though I can see it perfectly well. And whenever I send to you, I just want to send to Dagachi.eth, but I actually send to one of these fresh addresses that I generate from looking up your stealth meta address on a public registry or from your ENS name or whatever. And this can just completely be built, even with this really simple proof of concept I had there. You already have all the tools to build this is just now doing sort of the front end and thinking about all of these little details that you could get right for people about the UX. Like, okay, well, so then how about when you want to sort of conglomerate all the assets or use DeFi? One big problem with stealth addresses by themselves is that then imagine now I want to take all my money and I want to provide ETH to Aave. But I had privacy. And I had privacy because people send me ETH a million times and each time they sent it to a fresh address. Now I'll leak my privacy either way if I either try to conglomerate all that ETH into one address that sort of links all those together. Or even if I had some weird protocol where actually what's happening is I, in one set of transactions, you know, provide liquidity to Aave with all those addresses, well, A, huge gas overhead and be still pretty obvious to link all those addresses. So that's where the, what I was saying about this, there's this nocturne protocol interested in stealth addresses that I think what's cool is they're using stealth addresses, but also something kind of like a tornado or something so that you can deal with this linkability problem later. Yeah, that's a big issue because when you think about the tornado, if you do air, send in like one mil, then try and take it out, you obviously know you can link it. And the self addresses, if you, is the same problem. If there's just multiple addresses, sure, you, you send it to unlinked ones. But as soon as you try to use a protocol and try and use all the money in one go, then it's back to square one and negates the whole. Or even even smaller problems. And you can see this in Vitalik's blog posts and stuff, which is just like, what if I sent you some tokens? One really cool thing about stealth addresses is unlike Tornado, it doesn't just have to be one class of assets or anything. It immediately works for all tokens, all NFTs, whatever I want to send to your address, because I can just sort of send something to this random fresh address, and it could be anything that works on Ethereum. However, let's say I sent you an NFT stealthily, right? I sent you some stealth milady, and you don't want anyone to know you've got the milady. Secret milady, undercover. <laughs> and this is all great, but now you want to go do something or move that milady to somewhere else or sell it or something. That address has no ETH in it. Are you going to add ETH and from what address because you don't want it to be a linked one or you lose all the privacy? And so these little edge cases are what this kind of like wallet that I'm envisioning would be able to sort of manage for you under the hood somehow amazingly where maybe it's tornadoing ETH all the time and then 
depositing ETH a little bit in each of these and then sometimes conglomerating things or all these sort of really hard problems you'd have to solve, but that eventually the idea would be to give you a seamless experience so it's just as simple as your existing wallets today. You feel like it's just one wallet, but actually we've made a huge advancement in everybody transacting with much more privacy. And the cool thing is once you and I and the more people that do it, like the privacy kind of has this like nonlinear thing. Yeah. Yeah. I think the only bad thing about privacy is that in the future, I think there'll be huge KYCs on every single exchange. And so you will be limited to the crypto ecosystem. And then it comes like, okay, if you want to use the IRL, how will people even accept it? And so then it becomes worthless if you can't use it IRL or in only within this crypto game of itself, you kind of get it out in any way. And it's, it's like, oh, well, what's the point in it? <laughs> for sure, for sure. And it's, I feel like the only thing I would say back to that, right, is in, of course is extremely lofty, but like the dream would be that you have protocols like this all like, yeah, super open source, really easy for everyone to use. So everyone's opting in all the time. And then also ETH for payments is a real thing. And so then I can just pay you an ETH to your stealth address, you know, and to get my IRL goods and so on, which of course, again, right, nobody buys this. This is pie in the sky thinking, but like this would be a really, really cool future again for the sort of future of transacting and freedom to transact and so on. Yeah, definitely. Privacy is something that I hope will get a lot better, especially in a day and age of internet and AI coming on. You imagine like AI agents just kind of roaming the internet in the future as well. It'll just get keep on getting worse and worse to the point of privacy is hard to have. I think there was a book on this, something similar. It was like 2057, something like that. They kind of talk about the future and surveillance and whatnot. It's pretty scary. And it could be pretty realistic as well. But until that day, we'll just keep playing Ponzi-nomics and crypto. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think surveillance is a really cool issue. I also think right surveillance will just keep getting better too. Right. So even though cryptography has been massively accelerating and helping us, like also surveillance just always keeps finding ways to keep surveying you. And in a world of AI agents everywhere and cameras and so on, like maybe even if we have all this amazing cryptographic tech and stuff, there are still new ways where they try to surveil and pinpoint you. So I don't think it's going to be easy to kind of slay the surveillance state in any way, but at least there's some optimism with crypto. Slowly chip at it until you hit a breaking point where they can't do anything about it you know crypto is getting there it's a good step i don't think we've ever seen something like this before it was a great chatting with you and a very thought-provoking conversation <laughs> and it'll be interesting to see how the future plays out when we look back at this and be like oh sick we were right or completely wrong <laughs> <laughs> yeah i love watching it play out in crypto because it's so messy but over the really long term, there will definitely be some effects where we can say, whoa, that really happened. But it's like, it's real time scale. The funniest thing about crypto is all these short term thinking people all the time in this Ponzi-nomics, like you say. The real time scale of crypto is tens, fifties, hundreds of years. That's how the, even the person who designed Bitcoin, whoever they are, thought about at least a 140 year schedule in advance. So we'll see what happens. And I love that it's going to take that long to see. Like in 10, 20, 30 years, I think is when we'll even just validate was ETH or Bitcoin the right road? Do applications matter or not? I have no idea. So anyway, I'm pumped to just see the future out in front of me. So yeah, thank you so much for jumping on, Cassandra. And I'm sure we'll speak again soon. Yeah, it was awesome meeting you. Thanks for having me. And yeah, see you around. Likewise, take care.